when I think back as a kid to the cartoons that I watched, I noticed that um, uh, in many of the cartoons, specifically the Looney Tunes, um, you know, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and all those guys there, that in order to picture a guy who was just in futility, just spinning his wheels, um, you would have a hamster wheel that might show up, or you'd have a guy who's trying to run, but his, and his feet are moving, but he's not having traction. Um, uh, and when I think of uh, other, other pictures in life of futility and emptiness and not going anywhere, I think of treadmills, hamster wheels, um, ice skating rinks. How many of you are good ice skaters, or you like to ice skate at least? I can't do it. I need more practice, I guess. But you have to have skates on the ice, right? To get that traction and to push off here. And in Titus chapter 2 and verse 1, he tells us that if we're only having doctrine that's filling our heads, then we're out of balance. And we need to have traction, feet on the ground, so to speak. Because he says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 1, But speak thou, or speak you, you speak the things which become sound doctrine. That word become is the idea of what is fitting to, what lines up with, what flows out of sound doctrine. And one of the best pictures I can uh, present to you this morning of a, a, a life of futility, a life that is out of balance, that is just going in circles, is the idea of a rowboat with one oar. Rowboat with one oar. We lived in Connecticut uh, near what's called the Thames River, and down the Thames River is the, Grot the Groton Submarine Base, which used to be the largest naval submarine base in the world. And the Thames River, um, the, 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 the part of the Thames River we lived on was called Horton Cove, and Horton Cove was just a little offshoot of that river. And there behind that, um, uh, behind our house in that river, we would catch blue crabs. It was a brackish river. The tides would go in and out. And, uh, and, and one day my dad decided, well, we need something to go out on that river with. And so he bought a, a, a rowboat, a used rowboat from somebody who listed in the classified ads in the newspaper. How many of you remember newspapers? <laughs> um, and so he bought it, bought a rowboat. And uh, I had to learn to row. And it, how many of you have rowed a rowboat? Not just a canoe row, okay. So you know that as you're rowing the rowboat, if you do one oar, that's going to send you this way. If you do the other oar, that's going to send you this way. But if you do both, it should bring you in a, in a generally straight line. Of course, that depends on the current and the wind and everything else. And it was a real learning curve. And there were many times where I would be like more doing more of a zigzag than a straight line row, and then I'd have to correct my course. And what it was was because I was overcompensating with one particular um, or than the other, and so I would have to keep correcting my course. And here, the writer of, 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 of Titus, Paul, um, writing this to Titus, um, gives a correction to course here. Uh, he gives him two oars and says, you must be rowing these two oars, and what they are is life and doctrine, practice and instruction. You see, he has already in Titus 1 through, uh, 1 through 9 laid out uh, who spiritual leaders are to be and how they are to minister and the kind of character they are to be. And then in verse 9, the things they are to do with the word of God. He said in Titus 1 verse 9, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince or to uh, um, correct the gainsayers, the opposition. 
And then last week we looked in verses 11 through 18 where Paul talks about these false teachers. Men, it seems, who had taken on the responsibility and initiative wrongly by leading the church and they were not men who were qualified to do so. In fact, they had ulterior motives. They had hidden agendas. And Paul exposes these wolves and we looked last week at how he tells uh, Titus to defang these wolves and then to build up the sheep. But you might notice in verse 16 of Titus chapter 1 that he says something very significant that now he's going to pick up on in chapter 2 and verse 1. When you see that conjunction but there in chapter 2 verse 1, he is contrasting, right? This but do this. And so verse 16 says, these false teachers, in verse 16 says, they profess that they know God with their mouth. Oh yeah, I know God. I'm, I'm a saved I'm, I'm, I'm a saved person. I'm a believer. Verse, verse 16 says, But in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient to every good work reprobate. They're worthless. They are detestable. So they have this profession of faith, but in contrast to that is their lives. And they don't match up to what they profess. They are not, as Paul has said in other places, walking worthy of this great calling that they've been called to. Their doctrine and their life stinks with these people. And to correct that course with the sheep, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, those who have right doctrine also need to have right living, right practice. And it is right living that is to come out of right doctrine. Right doctrine and right theology and getting all your, your, your T's crossed and your I's dotted is not the end of it all. Learning theology and knowing things in the Bible is not so that you can live in an ivory tower and just gaze on the majesty of the Word of God. But it is to make a difference in our lives. And so in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Okay, have the right doctrine. Here's the other or so you don't go in circles. And if we are going to be a living church on the move, a healthy church, and our lives then must shine out of the rescuing grace of God in character and action. In other words, as James puts it, our faith must work. And these commands to now different stages of the seasons of life that I read in verses 1 through 10, and the relationship to others, are directly connected to an attractive and a potent display of God's glory of His grace in the gospel. And if we, South Hope Community Church, this local church here, is to be a living church on the advance for Christ's kingdom and have a compelling witness to the world of God's grace in our lives and a gospel that is not just powerful enough to save us from hell, but is powerful enough to save us to God, to rescue us, our responsibilities to each other and to our families and to our work must reflect Jesus. And here is the infrastructure in Titus 2, verses 1 through 10, that Paul tells Titus must be present in the local church. All of us are in different roles, in different stages, in different seasons of life. I don't think it's healthy for a church to only reflect a single generation, whether an older generation or a younger generation. And there's give and take that each generation needs to have, don't they? But all of us are in different seasons of life, different stages. We all face different challenges and temptations of sin. And so Paul breaks it up into the different generations here and says, here are the things you need to focus on in order to be a living church on the advance of Christ's kingdom. 
He has, in chapter 1, verse 5, told uh, Titus he needed to appoint healthy leaders. And I asked you two weeks ago, if you would begin to pray that the Lord would bring on another pastor to help our specific local church here. And I'm wondering if you're praying for that. And I mean that. Are you praying for that? That God would bring the right man along to help and to, and to, and to help shepherd the sheep here. And then in Titus chapter 2, now in verse 1, he says, Speak or teach the things which are align up with right doctrine. And then later in chapter 3, a few weeks from now, in verse 1, he says, Help them to remember, remind them of these things. And if you'll advance to the next slide there. By the way, we're missing our little uh, remote when we cleaned out the auditorium. So if anybody knows where that is or seen it, let me know. Um, so he is, he, is, he, is, he is in the book of Titus. Very simply, this is like stripped down church. This is like, this is like the, the essentials of what church is. And this would be a great book. Um, uh, someone's mentioned to me to take and use as an introduction to what the life of the local church is. Titus 1 through 3. But he's talked about a church that needs to be put in order. And, and the things that were lacking now need to be shored up. The things that were missing now need to, be, need to be put in place. The things that were wrongly placed need to be removed. In chapter 2, verse 1, it's a church with good doctrine now. Doctrine that lines up with practice. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, it is, will be now these good deeds. These being ready to every good work. And this is the picture of the New Testament church. I don't care uh, uh, what the different models through history have been. Or what your specific college or school or Bible college has said, this is what a church looks like. If it is not what the scripture says, what a church looks like here. And I realize they can be adapted and there's some things that we can tweak for every culture and generation here. But this is it. Get that. This is it. Okay? And so here's what he says in chapter 2 and verse 1 after he's saying, here's the things you need to teach that help people live in line with the gospel, live in line with good doctrine. He says, there needs to be an understanding of gospel living for the aged. An understanding of gospel living for the aged, for the older Generation, the older generation. And in chapter 2 and verses uh, 2 through 4, he then lays out older men and older women, who they are to be here. And so what I want you to understand is that um, uh, he, he, he makes it very clear that the older generations in our church need to be honored and they need to be held accountable. They need to be honored and they need to be held accountable. The younger generations in our church need to be instructed and they need to be held accountable. And those who serve underneath an authority in the various stations and spheres of life need to be instructed and they need to be held, be held accountable. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he has instructed Timothy in the church how to respond and how to uh, correct someone who is an older generation. And there's a proper way to do it in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So it tells us here that God expects all of us, young and old, to hold each other accountable to the instructions that He has specifically given you to your life stage and your season of life. In other words, we don't just give people a free pass because of the color of their hair or the amount of years they live on this earth. And we don't give people a free pass because, oh, they're young and they might not have learned it all yet. God expects us to hold all of us accountable. And this, friends, is not Jamie Bickle's suggestions for the church here. This is God's word for the church in being a healthy church 
And this is the commands of God. So let's look at it. First of all, gospel living for the aged. Alright, first of all, you're wondering, well, am I older? Am I part of that other group, the aged? Well, it's kind of hard to specifically answer that question. But I can tell you this. Um, that... Uh, that word older or aged used in other literature outside of the Bible generally referred to someone who is 50 or over. But don't worry about the age. The idea there of aged is the, is the concept of people who are old enough now to have kids who have their own families. So that kind of defines what age it is. Um, and the idea is to honor them and hold them accountable. Look at what he says in verse 2. At the aged men. So men, this is your focus here. If you are in that category, this is God's commands to you. In order to have a living church that advances Christ's kingdom, that has a compelling witness to the world, this is the character that needs to be instilled in your life and how you need to be for God's glory. And it's pretty simple, isn't it? Uh, simple but not easy, right? Many things in the Bible are simple to understand. does not mean they are easy to do. And that's why we need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. But he says that the older men... Be sober, sober, that they be grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. The idea is the older men be sober, they be reverent, they have a certain dignity to them, they be self-controlled and they be healthy in their trust and their love and in their endurance and patience. Why does he say this? Well, certainly different age and seasons here may have different temptations to sin that other ones might not struggle with or may struggle with down the road. In particular, I guess it's implying here that maybe older men might be more easily tempted to be grumpy, uh, to be argumentative, uh, to be cynical of life. They've seen it all, right? They've seen the, the realities of life and, and uh, maybe uh, more skeptical of life. Uh, uh, they, they may be tired of serving. Uh, they may think that um, the word, they may be disillusioned, disenchanted with the word of God and the power of the gospel. Because they've seen so many failures with people with it. Um, they may have the mentality, oh, we tried this before, kind of a thing. Or maybe this mentality of only things were like they used to be, Right? Only kids were raised like I was raised. The good old days, right? People today. Uh, they may become impatient. They, they may, if I'm understanding the instructions and putting together the picture correctly here, they may be less enthusiastic about life in God's kingdom. And Paul tells Titus, it cannot be that way. Like Caleb of old in the Old Testament, they are to not grow weary of God's work. And the older men, really, when you boil it down, receive two main exhortations, which can be summed up in these two words, dignity and maturity. Dignity and maturity. There are older men in our culture, and perhaps even in our church, who may have lived many years, may have even been saved for many years, but are not mature Christians. Because your age is not necessarily linked to your spiritual age, is it? And Paul says, men need to grow up. They need to be mature. Stop living for themselves, to be sober, to be reverent, to be temperate, self-controlled, and to be healthy in a trust in God, in a love that serves others, and in an impatience for the circumstances God puts in their lives and the people God puts in their lives. Dignity and maturity. As far as dignity, the older men are to be temperate, self-controlled. They are to be worthy of respect. 
They are to exhibit a certain kind of gravity here. Paul has no patience for a midlife crisis. It does nothing for the gospel of Jesus Christ for you older men to go through midlife crisis. It does nothing for the witness of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel and living for eternal things. You know what, you know what that does? It says this world and my life now is what matters. It's selfish and it's wrong. But Paul has all kinds of passion and Paul understands the importance of men who are worthy of respect and the powerful impact they can have on the life of the church and the witness in the community. They are to exhibit this, 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 this steadiness here, which is appropriate to their seniority here, and expresses their, their inner self-control. And we would expect, right, older men should be more sound and mature in aspects of their character. And not in the very least of these three foundational cardinal virtues that Paul lists at the end here of chapter 2, verse 2. He says, sound, that word means healthy. You know when something's sound, when you thump on it, right? And it's kind of punky wood or something solid like this, oak. By the way, this is made from one of the pews here, so Peter put that together. So we're still living on here. But no one has to sit on this. <laughs> um, but the idea here is sound or mature or healthy in every aspect of their character. First of all, faith. What is faith? It's trusting God. Older men are to be mature and growing in their trust of God. In love. We could keep that very simple and just say serving others, couldn't we? Older men are to be healthy in serving others. And endurance. Waiting patiently for the fulfillment of their Christian hope. Listen, don't waste your retirement. Don't waste your, don't waste your, 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 your senior years. Use them for God's glory. Um, don't think that you ever retire from Christian ministry as far as being uninvolved in it anymore. Where you reach an age where you're not involved in it. Even from your couch in the invalid chair... You can have the ministry of intercession. You can invite people to come see you, right? And minister to them. Never retire from that. And folks, this the idea is this. The older men in this room here need to be men that these young men all around us can look up from age 2 all the way through age 32, can look up to and say, by God's grace, that's who I want to be in 20, 30, 40 years. A guy who, after all these years of walking with God, is not burned out. He hasn't lost his zeal for God and His Word. A man who is worthy of respect in the church because of that. Not because he's an amazing person, but because he has an amazing God. And not look at them and say, I hope I don't lose my zeal for Jesus in His church like they did. And Paul lists this out so that we have strong homes that don't get uprooted like what happened in the earlier verses in Titus chapter 1. And strong, thriving, healthy churches that advance. And of course, each one of these things could be a whole sermon, couldn't they? The aged women, verse 2. He says, the aged women likewise. And that word likewise means in the same manner. In the same manner, and it seems that, uh, that the uh, older women may, may face similar temptations just from the reason of where they are in life. Uh, that they, he says that they be in behavior. 
Remember, he's not just talking about the things they know in their head, but what's lived out. That they may be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers or slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they may teach the young women. You know, our sin natures can have a slow leak, can they? They can have a slow leak over time that saps our zeal for the Lord and passion for obedience to God. Society wants to hold on to youthfulness, doesn't it? Instead of embracing the plan that God has for you in your stage of life. And nothing should ever replace a hunger for godly living. The things he talks about, he says, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becomes holiness here. The idea there is that they have a hunger for godly living. These are to be people who... um, uh, uh, not, do not look down on others and talk about others. That's why he says not false accusers or slanderers. These are to be people who, who uh, don't say, well, we didn't have it that easy when we were growing up and kind of scoff you know, other generations on. They can't say things like, they're not the wives, the daughter they should be. She isn't raising her the way I was raised. They don't serve like they should. And they should guard against getting used to the same old routine and having stopped, uh, topped out and, 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 and advancing for God's kingdom and lapsed into a spiritual, lazy, critical spirit that does not invest in others. And that seems to be one of the things that, that rides up here in, in verse 2 and 3 is this critical spirit, the cynical spirit here that um, a life of age without the spirit may lapse into. Titus is to teach the older women. And the older women are to teach the younger women. But the things that he is to teach these older women is that they are to understand that there are three areas of Christian conduct that are singled out for them. First, they are to be reverent in the way they are to live. Reverent in the way they live. The Greek word here that is translated um, in verse 3, that they be in behavior as becomes holiness, is an interesting word. It occurs one time in the New Testament. It is only here. It, it is the idea of a priestess. A woman who serves as a priest. And the, and the, and the idea here is that uh, uh, it can mean um, uh, uh, that the older women are to carry into daily life the demeanor that they are priests before God. That they represent God to the people they come in contact. That they have a relationship, fellowship with God. And they represent God in that sense. Just like a priestess would maybe in a, in a temple somewhere. Or we might say this. As someone has said long ago, they practice the presence of God in their lives. They live before the face of God. That's the idea of, of, of reverence here. They allow the sense of His presence and His Word to permeate their whole lives. That's the idea here that Paul tells Titus the older women need to understand. Secondly, they are to strenuously and passionately avoid two moral failures, which they may sometimes be associated with. And the first is this. They are not to be slanderers, backbiters. The idea there is scandal mongers. Quick to chit-chat, chit-chat, chit-chat and tear down people. Or to be addicted to much wine. Those are the two things that he said they need to focus on as far as the vices. Um, be positively representing God to the world. 
Do not be false accusers or given to much wine. And thirdly and positively, instead of using their mouths to slander, using their time to tear down people and be critical, they are to use their mouths to build people up and to teach, he says, what is good in in verse 3. Uh, the second part of verse 3. Now, who are they to teach? Well, certainly their own family, no doubt. Children and grandchildren. But also and especially, they can train the younger women. Chapter 4, or verse, verse 4. And it's important to note that although Titus is himself to teach the older men and older women, and later the young men in verse 6, it is the older women who bear squarely on their shoulders the responsibility of teaching the younger women. It's wise. It's wise. You've been there. You've done that. You know the ins and outs. You know the, uh, the nuances of life here. The application. And there is a great need in every congregation for the ministry of mature women. Sharing their wisdom and experience with the rising generations. Preparing brides for their weddings. Advising them about marriage and parenthood. Not for the sake of gossip or getting all the nitty gritty, but be able to really build up the families so that our gospel witness is enhanced and not limited. You are not to be resistant to this, older women. You are not to make excuses about why you cannot do this. But you, according to this passage, are to take the initiative to seek out women younger than you and invest in them with the things that you have gleaned. It does not mean you have reached the pinnacle, does it? And probably that's what holds many of you back. I just can't be honest about the struggles I face. You can be honest about how God has helped you in those struggles. That's what you can be honest about. And you can invest in younger women. Not because you're amazing people, but because God's grace is amazing. And He has worked in your lives, and God wants that grace to overflow in the lives of other younger women. And I will tell you this, as the um, husband of a woman who would fit in that category, and if it's representative of other women in this audience, younger women are craving for that. They haven't taken the initiative to seek out older women. Older women need to take that initiative. But also say this, here, younger women... Don't wait for them to take that initiative because some of them never will. You need to go seek them out too. You need to have them over coffee. You need to ask them, what did you do in this situation? And you know who the wise women in this church are, don't you? You know who the ones who have walked with God over the years are. Seek them out. Don't weigh back in passiveness, but seek them out. Secondly, though, not only gospel living for the younger, but for the age of now gospel living for the younger. He says... And verse 4, that they may teach young women to be sober. That's that word again, temperate, self-controlled. To love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet. That's the idea of being sensible, chaste, pure. Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And then he'll say the young men in verse 6, exhort to be sober-minded. What are the good things the older women are commanded to teach the younger women in this passage? It is the stuff that their husbands aren't going to teach them. What things were they to teach them? The basics of a good marriage from the wife's point of view, from the wife's role in family life. Why? Because false teachers were overthrowing whole families. Look in verse 11 of chapter 1. They're subverting, overthrowing families here. And so Paul wants them to understand that 
Older women, you have a real key role in establishing and strengthening our families for the sake of the gospel and our witness. A living church on the move is only as strong as its families are, and strong families are essential to compelling witness in the community. And in our day, they stand out like a sore thumb, don't they? They are a great oddity, a peculiar and a curious phenomenon, but that speaks loudly to God's changing grace. The word teach there is to train in sound thinking or living. It is based on the root word for wisdom. So the idea here is for the older women to impart wisdom. What is wisdom? It is skilled, Christ-centered living. That's what wisdom is. Based upon, upon Christ's design of the teaching of the church that he has given to us in the scripture for our families. And, and it's to be passed down to these younger women and how to build strong marriages. How to have healthy relationships with their children and solid family lives. They were to train these younger women in wise living to love their husbands and children. The word love there is not the usual word for love, agape. It's the word phileo, and it's the idea of brotherly love. It's the idea of affection and caring. And they are to train wives, younger women and wise loving, living to love their husbands and children in affection and caring. Why? Because that can be lost over time, can't it? We looked in our marriage series. The tank always needs to be filled. Or it can be developed and cultivated. God wants it to be cultivated for a strong gospel witness. And loving care and affection for a husband is a totally different picture of love that the world has of a romantic infatuation and emotions, isn't it? That's what the world builds its house on and that's what it dies on when it's gone. But these younger women are to be trained by the older women to love their husbands and children. Verse 4. How they should love their husbands and love their children is really the idea. They're to be trained in this, which implies that that can be brought under control by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that's pie in the sky. You can be trained by God's power and His Word, young wives, young women, to love your your husbands and your children. They're also to be trained to be self-controlled and pure and to be busy at home. It's uh, rendered here, keepers at home. But the idea here is, is, uh, is, is, is working at home. And, 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 it's, and it's not the, the uh, idea that you can't live, leave the house, you can never be an entrepreneur. But it's this, it is the idea that they are making their home the central priority. The central tasks, I should say, in their lives. Outside enterprises are not forbidden. See Proverbs 31, right? And the virtuous wife... But they must be guarded to never take away from the primary task of the home. Listen, you only get one shot at this with these kids, don't you? You only get so many years with these kids that God has given you. And, they, and then they are on their own. And you only get so many years to impact them for Jesus Christ. And the early years are are crucial. The growing years are super important. Teenage years is your last few years with them, right? And God knows that if we are going to have strong churches, a powerful witness, and strong homes, older women need to teach the younger women, in spite of relentless pressure and distortion by the world, and an opposition of values here. That the cultivation and stewardship of the home is absolutely priority number one for young wives. 
Caring for and nurturing a solid home and marriage is healthy. And in this magnificent plan here for healthy families and thereby resulting healthy churches, God knows that husbands are responsible for teaching their families and their wives spiritual development. And pastors are responsible for instructing and preserving healthy doctrine in a local church. And older women are responsible to help younger women live soundly in that teaching, especially helping them with the concepts lived out in their households. And today, you younger wives need to be reinforced tremendously. Because culture says what you do at home is not important. And the devil wants to stretch you so thin with keeping up the world's values and have you focus on developing a career that it can leave your family coughing and sputtering in deep water you were never intended to swim in. You cannot do both well. That's been clear. The feminist movement has admitted that over the years. And those two worlds will make you feel like you are out of step if you keep your home and marriage or central tasks in Jesus' design. And since you cannot do both well or you will burn out, there is a huge need for older, spiritually mature women to come alongside younger women and help them think biblically and say, this is God's design for a flourishing life. And this is what God has taught me over the years. I've failed in this. Or the Lord's helped me in this. Or by His grace, I've been able to do this. But here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. And husbands... You should not be putting pressure on your wife to be the breadwinner in the family. That is politically incorrect. And we'd be blasted if we you know, said something like that outside these walls here. But according to this passage, you see that it's God's truth. Listen, marriage and family in a, in a fallen world has enough extra pressures that need to be eliminated. Nurture and lead your wives in Christ's design. Value highly what they do for your family. Don't complain about the things that they're not doing. Value what they're doing. Build them up. Support and honor it. Be committed to the local church community and the web of relationships that God has given to help you grow. Do not give in to the pull of the world to focus everything on your career and neglect the foundations of the home, which will have an eternal, far-reaching effect. And older women, you're to teach younger women and help them along with this. And it almost goes without saying. It's implied, and I think you see it in First Timothy, or Second Timothy two two, and other, and the pattern of Scripture and Jesus' example with others. But it, but older men are to teach younger men on how to build strong households as well in their roles, on what they have learned to do or not to do by God's grace in marriage and family. You see, the bi- biblical way of thinking about marriage and family here. You're wondering why am I bringing this up? Because this is, this is the point of the teaching here. To have strong homes and strong churches. It's not to focus on the emotional bond of marriage itself. You know, that's a byproduct. We don't focus on the emotional bond and the feelings of marriage. But we fully enjoy a relationship in the context of true community. We cannot live as individuals isolated from the community in the local church and be following God's plan. And we cannot live as individual families isolated from God's family and function truly in God's design. We cannot have competition between the nuclear family and the local church. The church must be the larger context that builds up the nuclear family. 
supports a family and its relationships. In other words, from this passage here, the body life that is laid out here in the overall household of God that is to minister to the individual households here of our families um, that shows us that the church is crucial to the health and shape of a Christian family that is being strengthened. Husbands, fathers, you are the representative heads of your families. And I know there are single parents out there uh, uh, and, 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 and single moms. Uh, you are placed in that role here at this point as well. And men need to step in and help build up what's missing. Fathers, you're the representative heads of your families. You oversee your family's involvement uh, in, his, in his body, the church. You represent your family's needs to the church as well. Your sons need to be trained as Christian men and not separated from you as your father. Men, you are the link between the smaller unit here of the individual family and the church family. And restore your sense of responsibility for both the community of Christ and the family will help undergird your family. As you cultivate your individual family, don't forget the relationship that your church plays. It's a very powerful role. You'll notice here that an intergenerational church is a spirit's vision for flourishing families, and so be fully involved in the life of community believers. I'll move quickly here. And he says in verse 6, Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Interesting, he says, just, if you could just get this, young guys, everything else will fall into place. Just one thing, sober-minded, get that, right? Why? Because younger men may have uh, a st- stronger temptations of lust. They may, they may not. Ambitions and dreams, they need to be tempered with wisdom. They may uh, be more apt to impatience and anger. And he says, young men, you need to focus on your response of self-control. Titus, you be an example of the young men, he says, in verse 7, in all things showing yourself, Titus, a pattern of good works and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity or integrity, uh, sincerity. There's integrity and dignity here. Titus, be an example of these young men in integrity and seriousness and soundness. Show young men how to grow up. To take life seriously. To be responsible. To stop being a child. To quit living for yourself in your video games. Be the biblical picture of a man. Serve and sacrifice for others, is what he tells Titus. There'd be a whole other message there, couldn't it? And then finally, as we close, verses 9 and 10. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining or stealing, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. After he describes what Titus is to do and an example is the view of the young men with these things in verse 7 and verse 8 sound speech that can't be condemned. We don't want to give the the enemy any any ammunition is what he's saying in verse 8. Then he says, thirdly, gospel living under authority. Now, none of us are slaves of masters here in this world and in our settings in 21st century uh, today right now. What I think the broader application is, as you serve others who are over you, authority, and you could make the application, I think pretty legitimately, that you could think about your employer this way, right? There are five things you are to do to glorify God. They are very simple. First of all, look what he says. Do what they say. 
Do what they say, obviously, unless it conflicts with God's word. Secondly, do what they say in not a minimal or passive way. In other words, only doing what's required and no more. Because he says, be well-pleasing. Not just checking off a list of duties, but to have this heart change of attitude that is proactive and seeks to bless the one you're working for. Thirdly, speak respectfully and have a respectful attitude, even if that person is very hard to respect, simply because of the position that God has allowed them to be in His sovereign hand to place Him in authority over your life, whether you like the, the goon or not. Speak respectfully and have a respectful attitude for the position the Lord has put them in over you. Fourthly, don't take things that are not yours while you're working for them. Time, and of course materials, tools, supplies, stealing opportunities, stealing leads. That's the fourth thing. And fifthly, obviously, live a life of integrity. Live a life of integrity. He says, but showing all good fidelity. That's faith. All good faith. When we talk about something, we say, I'm going to shake your hand in good faith here. We're saying, I'm going to exercise my integrity between you and the other party. Why all these things, folks? Well, in other words, be, do, live, work in such a way that God Almighty and His great gospel of grace is worshipped through your life and His name is set apart in your responsibilities to people in authority over you. Did you see this three times in this passage? He says in verse 5, teach the older to teach the younger women that the word of God be not blasphemed. He says in verse um, 8, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And he says in verse 10, that they may adorn, the word is cosmeo, where we get cosmetic, it's to make beautiful, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You see the connection here between the way you live and your gospel witness? If we're to be alive, a living church that is on the advance of Christ's kingdom, we cannot just have good theology, can we? We can't have good doctrine. This works itself out day to day in very menial ways, doesn't it? Because it starts with a heart that has changed. And so next week, Birch is going to bring the medicine and the grace and remind us of what God has changed us from. What he has done to rescue us. Because this message isn't just do better here. Verses 11 through 15 is going to tell us, here's why. Here's what changes us. Here's what flows out. Here's where it's all sourced and rooted in. Just about every one of these different life stages and seasons has the idea of self-control in them. Self-control. And if a church is going to have a compelling witness, a healthy living, the blessed life, the good life, so to speak, from God's perspective, for the sake of the gospel and God's glory, to be a living church on the move, it must be shown through the way of Christ and the apostles that the doctrine that he instructs us in and forms us in has feet on it. And it must show the world that God is beautiful and his gospel is powerful. And not just empty words. Let's pray.